many things have happened, and we are here to just bring back a report of what God has been doing to build his church in Italy. Um, I would like to just introduce somebody who's special to me. Godwin, would you stand up with your family? They drove in from Boston this morning. Uh, Godwin has... Uh, <laughs> He attended, uh, you may be seated, uh, he attended our church, Italian church over there, and then he came back to the States. They've been in Italy for 17 years. So I consider it really special that they would drive all the way over from Boston this morning to be here and uh, just love, they love the Lord and so grateful to, to see you this morning, Godwin, with your lovely family there, and thank you for coming. Um, this morning, uh, I don't know if any of you have already seen our display table as you come in that main uh, uh, entry there. Uh, we have a new prayer card there and also one of our gypsy pastor that we'd invite you to pray for. And if any of you would like to receive our, our prayer uh, letters, uh, there's a little slip of paper there that gives our email address. And if you could um, just give us a, drop us a line and we can make sure that you re start receiving those, uh, we're happy to do that. We celebrated our 50th anniversary last year, and uh, when we first came to Italy, uh, we didn't remember having uh, put it on our, our first prayer card that you saw on the screen earlier. Uh, Ephesians 3, 20, and, and uh, now unto him that's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that you can ask or think according to his power that works within us. And we just, as we had our anniversary, we, we thought that that verse would, uh, it's a favor of mine, would be wonderful to... to uh, evidence God's work in Italy, and so we had it as a theme for our 50th anniversary, and God has done so many wonderful things in opening doors of opportunity in Italy. We just are really astounded by the, the way that he is building his church, and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it, and despite the fact that Italy is a very difficult terrain, uh, missionaries usually... Uh, 90% don't return after their first term, to give you an idea of the various obstacles and difficulties that people face there. Um, as I pointed out last furlough, uh, we have a one-hour radius uh, around where we are that we calculated there are over 1,000 towns, cities, and villages without a sound preaching gospel church. Astounding statistics and certainly make it evident that there's plenty of work to be done yet. We can't work ourselves out of a job. There's, uh, that's uh, going to take quite a few people, and, and, um, and we're doing what we can, and we're really rejoicing in that. Um, having said that, Kathy and I are, are not um, willing to uh, retire off to some little remote place and just sail off into the end of our lives, but we want to stay in the saddle and be able to serve as long as possible. Uh, it took a long time to learn the language and the culture and, and uh, build, and so we want to kind of spin off other church plants from our, our main Italian church, which has grown to, if everybody's there, 230 people on a Sunday. Um, unfortunately, not everybody's there on one Sunday, but uh, we have, when we got our new building, we thought it would be rough to, hard to fill it up, and now we're thinking, oh, maybe we might need the property on either side of us that's available. 
who knows? But we are really rejoicing. That new property was important too. When the, with COVID hitting, we needed t space to spread out with the, um, the social distancing and everything. We were wearing masks until we came here on in, uh, April 19th uh, in our church services. And um, I'm not for sure what the situation is there now as far as the, that goes. There's another wave of COVID coming through. But we're really grateful uh, that the Lord spared us. Uh, our kids thought they were going to lose us during COVID. And uh, we appreciate so much you folks praying for us. A number of people have already told us that you were praying. And we really want to say thank you. We want to thank you for adopting us as, as missionaries and being our sending church and also supporting us. And we just say a big heartfelt thank you to you. Grazie con le cuore, they would say in Italian. But we are very, very uh, honored uh, to be uh, your missionary arm to Italy. And we hope that uh, you are encouraged too as you saw the um, slide present or the audiovisual presentation that we sh showed before as we continue on in the theme of open doors i think it's interesting to note that in uh, acts 14 when paul uh, came back and uh, barnabas they came back to the church at antioch and the text says there that they declared all that god had done um, uh, in opening the door of faith to the gentiles and that's kind of the the whole idea of a missionary coming back on furlough is to report what God has done and in this case to open the doors specifically is in the text there and it is very apropos for what we're saying this morning but as I uh, consider those two uh, verses that we uh, had in the slide presentation um, the first one in 1st Corinthians 16 um, Paul really wanted to go visit the Corinthians but God had opened up such a neat door of opportunity at Ephesus in verse 8. He says, I'm going to tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Um, it's kind of interesting to note here his awareness of, of God's will. If, you know, as, if, if the Lord permits in verse 8, he's going to do this and this and this. And we obviously need to re-underline that in all of our lives. We're dependent upon his will. Um, this morning, I woke up with dizziness, and I was wondering if I was going to even be able to preach this morning, if I was going to have to pa call Pastor Greg and say, um, do you have an extra sermon th this morning? If God wills, I'm grateful. I'm feeling great now, but I really, it was a shaking experience to think, oh, what is God trying to tell me? And praying and sometimes thinking that, you know, Satan also is there to buffet us and to create tension at times in life, but I'm grateful for his enabling here. But there's also in this passage the mix, strange mixture of opportunities together with adversaries. You know, we never live in, a, in a, a perfect situation where life is always easy. There is that aspect of adversaries and suffering and difficulties that we have, that, that mixture uh, that exists, but it's to note that the early church was not abs did not uh, uh, have just a free range of going about their ministry. Stephen was martyred 
James, I started to say Giacomo in Italian, James was martyred. And, you know, that, that, that sober reminder that we live in a hostile world. And there are adversaries because Satan isn't just going to sit back and, and let us do our thing without a fierce resistance and those darts that he sh sends our way. So we're grateful for the fact that um, God is going to sustain us. Also in Revelation, the, the, uh, the scripture that was mentioned also in the presentation, Jesus is telling through the, the Apostle John, uh, I have the key of David. Uh, I, it's God that opens and no one shuts. Uh, and shuts and no one opens. In verse 8, I know your works, and I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it, for you have a little strength, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, and lie, uh, but lie, indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, to know that I have loved you. And because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial. And what I see in this is an awareness that God opens and shuts doors in our lives. He's sovereign. An awareness that God operates in those who are described as the synagogue of Satan. And furthermore, an awareness that God is going to deliver us from the, eye, the hour of trial. I think that that is a consolation to all of us because in his sovereignty there's a plan that he wants to accomplish and he wants to work through each of us. And there are going to be doors of opportunity that he puts there. And what are we going to do with those doors? Are we going to, do we even see them? And then are we going to take advantage of them? The purpose of my message is to give you some biblical examples of open doors through Paul's life, give you some practical il illustrations of that as it fleshes out in, the, in, in Italy, and then also to turn that around like a boomerang and say, hey, what about your life? What about your time and investment and your commitment to those open doors that God is putting near you and before you? And God is going to uh, do some mighty amazing things when we submit and we obey to take that gospel to the whole world and that begins with our next door neighbor or the guy we go to work with or family next door whatever how many of you like to suffer I had one gentleman in the first service that raised his hand. And I, I'm not for sure I would have liked to have had an opportunity to, to understand that. You know, normally our human flesh does not like to suffer. It's kind of innate in all of us. But can I suggest that God often uses suffering as a door of opportunity? There's something about suffering that sifts out superficiality and helps people to see the reality of the gospel and its effect on our lives. And the suffering becomes a megaphone for us to express our faith in trying situations, and people can say, this is, this is really for real. They can see that it's not just a superficial thing and just waxing eloquent in situations. In 2 Corinthians 11... Paul is 
trying to uh, defeat a, a situation that is existing there in the church where there's many false apostles and deceitful workers. And he's kind of trying to make a stark contrast between his life and their ways of going about doing things. And it's not like he's got this great big curriculum of things that he's saying all of his, uh, his qualities and uh, experience. He, he goes to a list of suffering that he has gone through to, that he is using as an illustration of his genuine commitment to Jesus Christ as in contrast to their way of living. Kind of reminds me of the prosperity uh, movement today. And if saying that, you know, if you love the Lord, everything you're going to have lots of money and everything's going to go smooth and so forth. It's kind of like times of Job and his friends and their perspective on life. But in 2 Corinthians 11, he said, Are those guys ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more in labors, more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. And from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep, in journeys often in perils of water and in perils of robbers, perils of my own countrymen, perils of the Gentiles, perils in the city, perils in the wilderness, perils in the sea, perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness, often in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily my deep concern for all the churches. Wow. Do we have a right attitude towards suffering? Do we have the perspective of growing spiritually through our trials? And then Paul, through all of that, to not lose focus and to realize there are con churches that need to be followed up, to be written to, to be preached to, to pray for, and to encourage. And this was all what it was about. Paul, when he was in, in the prisons, it, it, it flabbergasted me to think of how he was so productive when he was in prison, and he's writing churches, and we enjoy those letters today in the, gospel, in the, in the New Testament. Not only was he writing those letters, he was praying for them. And if that wasn't enough, he was also evangelizing the ones that God put beside him in the prison. Fantastic. But in a, a context of suffering. Not everything going easy and that prosperity mentality. Reminded me, too, of that sober time that Kathy and I were in the hospital. And our kids thinking that they were going to lose us. And knowing that, you know, maybe this is it. And Kathy going off one direction to one hospital. And then I remained. And all the horror stories of people that end up going there, getting intubated, dying, being cremated, no funeral service, and, and the whole drama and that agony. I was already having problems breathing as we both had pneumonia. And 70% of our lungs filled up. And wondering if I was going to see my wife again. 
And then they come to take me away with the ambulance and the siren and to realize God took me in one hospital, her in another, and she ended up in the third one, and I, there wasn't room in that one, I guess, and they took me. We ended up same hospital and then the same room together. And God encouraged our hearts. We were able to pray together. We were able to encourage one another. We were able to watch out for each other. And it meant so much to us. And knowing so many people were praying for us. And yet, as people were coming in to service us, reminded me of astronauts with all their paraphernalia that they had uh, and the mask and everything else. And, and yet to realize behind each of the, those masks, there were people that needed to know Jesus Christ. And people that we strangely and uniquely had an opportunity to intermingle with at that time of our lives and for them to see our vulnerability and to be able to express a witness to them, sometimes even being able to pray with them and then to uh, just invite them to come to our church later and then go back and have a scriptural calendar with their names and thanking them for their service to us. We keep praying that God will give us at least one person of those that minister to us that they will come to know the Lord. But um, God knows what he's doing, and I wouldn't be surprised if someday somebody's going to come in to our church service and say, um, you, uh, do you remember me? And, I, I, and I'll say no. And we, I, I was in the hospital. I said, well, sure, I didn't recognize you because you had your mask on. <laughs> but anyway, I trust that God somehow will make an impact on those times. But we thank you for praying for us. But it was in that context of suffering that God opened some doors exciting. And you know what? That made the suffering a little bit easier because we knew that there was going to be some benefit and that we were able to serve the Lord even in suffering. So I hope that you are challenged as well. Then another thing I see is Paul when he's down by the riverside. That, sa that Saturday that he was there in Philippi, he, he got informed where there's some, believe some people that feared God and, and worshiped God and that there were it was a group of women, and they're down there praying by the riverside. And so he goes there, and on the Sabbath day, he went out, to city, uh, out of the city to the riverside, verse 13, Acts 16, where prayer was customarily made, and we sat down and spoke to the women who were there. Now, a certain woman named Lydia heard us, and she was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. And the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And she and her household were baptized. And uh, what was kind of neat, it was this probably the beginning of the Philippian church, the, the, the uh, Philippi there. And we just kind of see how God opened her. She was obviously a God-fearing person. And there were other people like that in, 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 that didn't know the Lord. They, they were God-fearing but God sent Paul there, and through him, her heart was open to the gospel. And it's so beautiful how then she and her family were baptized, and then she wanted to encourage us and get the gospel going. And that's what has happened in Italy in several different situations that we had. Somebody got saved, and through that, a, a vision was established. And then churches were planted, churches plural, because of the small beginnings, and then adding and adding and adding, and then you, you saw the, the, the results of that. So here we see uh, Paul, his good habit 
and disciplined to every week to want to worship the Lord with other people and he's seeking out that opportunity. We also see his sharing and evangelizing, edifying that group of people, even if it was just a, just a group of women. I say, I wish men were more faithful and doing what they should be doing. But thank God that there was at least a group of women there. But he didn't, wasn't so masculine, uh, just tuned in for men that he avoided that opportunity. He preached the gospel there, and it was really neat to see what happened. And then there was the Christian identity resulting in baptism. This was not just a thing of, yeah, okay, I believe in Jesus and everything's fine. There was a, a commitment to also demonstrate obedience to him by immersion, and baptism by immersion. Sometimes over in Italy with infant baptism in the, in, in the religion that is dominant there, sometimes people say, well, I've already been baptized. Why do I have? No, because that is not a biblical baptism. Immersion is so that it demonstrates the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but it also it symbolizes bearing our old life and being new in Christ and restored and resurrected in him. Adivani was a, a young lady that came our way. She was an unwed mother, uh, from, and uh, she was coming to our services. She was invited by Nela, one of our believers, who worked in a center for abused women and children. And she came, and we were happy to have her. But we kind of saw that there were things, in, you know, that didn't quite jive. She wasn't very regular, not always uh, dressed in most appropriately. And so after quite some time, Kathy and I went to visit her. And we spent about three hours hearing her life story. And after about a couple hours of it, it became obvious that even though as a girl she was refused by her grandmother because her father was dark-skinned and her grandmother did not like her father and did not like her as a result because of the color of her skin and she struggled with identity and later on obviously became pregnant and there were people that abused her and uh, just a very agonizing story to hear and to realize that as she um, one day was walking and heard joyful music from a church and she went in and didn't understand anything but she liked the spirit of it and so she walked the aisle and shook the pastor's hand and I that kind of caused me to think well, maybe do we really ever have a clear understanding here of the gospel and so when she said that I realized there, there wasn't very specific there and I said did you? and then I gave the plan of salvation I like to take plenty of time to explain the piano plan of salvation about usually at least 45 minutes, an hour, to go through to make sure people really understand the issues at heart. And as I explain this to her and the need to be born again, she says, I've never done that. And so she prayed to receive Christ as her Savior. And you know, it made a big difference. She was concerned now about her little five-year-old boy and that he can spiritually understand things, she, becoming faithful in church service, having it insatiable appetite for the word of God her way of dress changed as well I'm so grateful for the power of the gospel and what it does in people's lives and how he opens hearts just as he opened Lydia and we have to sort through what is religious and what is a true born-again experience in knowing who Christ is and what he's done for us let's go on to 
the, uh, the prison experience of, of Paul and Silas, they were in prison not because of, of crimes that they had committed, but their crime was that they had, through God's power and exercising that power over a girl possessed with a spirit of divination, um, she had the capacity to foresee the future. And she was owned by her masters, and so the money that was gained went into their pockets, not to hers. So when she was no longer uh, their slave to do what would bring them in money, they got mad at Saul and Silas. In verse 19, they dragged them in the marketplace to the, to the authorities. And verse 23, and when they had laid many stripes on them and threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep, their secu- to keep them securely, having received such a charge, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. But at midnight, Paul and Silas are complaining and very upset with the Lord and rebelling and very bittered by what God had permitted them in their life. Is that what your Bible says? Um, the earlier service today, I didn't get any response, and I thought maybe this is a little bit too early, and they weren't. At least I, I got a little response from you all. So I'm glad you're paying attention. That's not what the biblical test says at all. I just want to make sure you're awake. What happened is at night, midnight, they're praying and singing hymns to God, and all the prisoners are listening. Can you imagine being there in that kind of a situation? A captivated audience. <laughs> but also just, I, I don't know, I, I, I wish I could have been there to hear that singing. Singing from the heart and praying. Even though they were hurting, I'm sure, from the open wounds on their backs. And the uncomfortable position of the stocks. And yet their hearts could not be imprisoned with the suffering, but their souls were free to praise God, pray, and people were listening to that. Now, if the suffering wasn't adequate, also then there's an earthquake to add to the mix. And the foundations of prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened. That's not not the open doors I was talking about today, but I mean, that too here. Um, Supposing that the prisoners had fled... The, the jailer pulls out his sword and was about to kill himself. Why? If he let the prisoners out, it would have been his life for theirs. It may be tortured before even being killed. So he just didn't see any purpose in living at that point. And then Paul hollers out, do yourself no harm. We're all here. And the guy comes in, falls down, trembling before Paul and Silas and so he brings them out. He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Makes me kind of think that kind of question so pertinent. I think he was ears dropping at times, what the praying and the singing that was going on before. It's certainly a unique thing, probably never happened in that, that prison before. But he's coming out and wanting to know. And so he believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, he and his house. The word was spoken Uh, Paul and Barnabas spoke the word of the Lord to him in verse 32, and all were in his house. And then verse 33, he took them that same hour of the night, washed their stripes, and immediately he and all of his family were baptized. Um, 
rejoicing, believe, having believed in God with all of his household. Um, what do I see in this? I see a godly reaction to persecution on the part of Paul and Barnabas. I see God's influence on people surrounding them and God's concern for enemies and people that are distraught and God's response that was, was uh, inspired in the jailer and his family in response to the message of, of, of the gospel. I think that we should not underestimate the power of the gospel and how God wants to use each one of us. There are so many opportunities each one of you individually face during a week's time that your pastoral staff never have those opportunities. And it's wrong to think that it's only doors of opportunity that they're supposed to do because they're the paid people. You know that they love God and they're doing it not for the pay, but also each one of us should be motivated by that. One day, Kathy and I, we, on Sundays, we would have, well, Saturday nights, we'd have a youth meeting at our home. Sunday mornings, we would have the Italian service. Kathy often would have our kids for noon meal. And then Sunday afternoon, we would get in the car, go to Maystrite Park get car, and get a bus to go out the long uh, Liberty Bridge out to Venice, and then walk another 15 minutes to go with the Filipino service. The Italian service in the morning, the Filipinos in the afternoon, they clean hotels. And oftentimes, that was when they were available uh, after doing their duties. Kathy was seated, seated next to the windows, and I'm holding on to one of the straps. And as we go by this, this retainer wall that was getting to the high point, about 10 uh, meters, uh, 30 feet fall off down to the water below, she sees a gal right on the edge standing, and she says, Frank, I think she's getting ready to commit suicide. And I, I just, by instinct, yelled out to the bus driver, please stop the bus. And normally, a lot of people do that to get, try to get them to stop at places that's more convenient. As, uh, and so I was amazed. He stopped. I think maybe as he was driving, he probably saw the woman. He knew why we were saying that. But he abruptly stopped. Unfortunately, a guy, I say unfortunately, but you know, God works in all the details. A guy jumped off before me. And he goes running to her, toward her. And of course, that scared her. And then she jumped. But he jumped in too. And I didn't do that because I wanted to be still alive. So I went down the long way and came back around. By that time, that young man who had that gut feeling to jump in, he actually got her out of the water and saved her. But then I came and I said, ma'am, I'm sure that there's something that's really tormenting you to put you to do that. I'm a pastor. I would love to be able to help you and encourage you. And she was just looking at me, kind of stunned-like. People were starting to gather, and there was not any more opportunity than that at that point. Kathy and I went on to our Filipino meeting, but afterwards I said, Kathy, let's go to the hospital and see if we can uh, visit this lady. So we went to the hospital, and when we got there, we were met by a nurse, and she, she said, where, do you, where are you going? Uh, we would like to visit this lady. She just tried to commit suicide. I'm a pastor, and I'd like to go visit her. The lady said, I'm a Buddhist, and I really don't care about what you're saying, but apart from that, uh, I can't let you go in unless she uh, re uh, requests that you come in. And so I thought quickly, okay, ma'am, could I give you at least a piece of paper with a message? And my fo um, so that I, and would you give it? Oh, sure. So she gave the la lady 
it had my name. I said, I'm the pastor that talked to you when you came out of the water, and I gave my phone number. One week passed. By this time, I didn't know if, what had happened to her, but sh she calls. She's a, a city two hours south. By that time, she was out of the hospital, and she explained her life story, uh, how her husband was, had abused her, and, and, and she wanted to finish it all. And I was able to get her to, in contact with a lady missionary who led her to the Lord. I think it's so exciting, not to, you know, pat ourselves on the back for the involvement, but the excitement, the joyment, the fulfillment to be a servant of the Lord. Do you have that experience? People that you meet, and when they have problems, do you dare try to get involved in an encouraging way and help point them to the Savior and to facilitate that they can know what the response, the remedy is for their situations? I think there's many people that are out there and they're needy, they're, they're, they're crying inside because of the desperation that they have and they have no hope. And that's where you and I come in. And God wants to sensitize our hearts. And we're not cold and indifferent about those needs, but that we reach out to them so that they too can come to know the Lord. I need to move on because of the time. Um, what I also see in, in Acts uh, 17 also is Paul at Athens. And here is a totally unique situation where he goes there and uh, at Athens and it says in verse 16, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he, re he, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers. He, in the marketplace, went daily with those who happened to be there. Um, then this, the, with the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers in Areopagus, he's there to talk with each of these peoples. Um, the philosophers thought, hey, these are strange things to our ears. And um, so Paul uh, stood up to explain himself, and he said, uh, men of Athens, I perceive that in all these things you are very religious. Because I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, in verse 23, and when I found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God, Therefore, the one to whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. Um, God who made the world and everything in it. And he goes on to tell in verse 25 that he gives life, breath, and, and, and uh, to all things. And that he has determined the times. And in verse 26 and verse 27, he wants to reach out so that everyone should seek the Lord. And know that he is not far from each one of us. Verse 30, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to be repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom <coughs> he, excuse me, he has ordained. And he has given assurance to, of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, oh, we'll hear you another time. But verse 34, some men joined him and believed three responses we could focus on the ones that made fun we could focus on those who were indifferent but I like to focus on those that believed and that Jesus is building his church and there were people there that God wanted to call out to himself and and that's what happened what do I see in this 
Paul was greatly disturbed by the idolatry. He was an avid and flexible communicator, whether it would be in the, in the synagogue, whether it was in a marketplace or with a philosopher's, three different approaches. And yet he did not let those opportunities get away from him. We see him as very informed on the cultural aspects of the people that lived in that city. And he's talking about the sculptures, the poets, and the altars as things that he had perceived. He was very well prepared to transition to from that re their realities to give a gospel presentation. That's a challenge to us, even in light of the woke culture today. It's a very challenge to try to relate with people who want to cancel out con con completely the Christian faith. How do we flesh that out in our Christian walk with them? I think of Paulo and Luciana that I went for 30 years and took them, uh, you can see back on our display uh, table, a gospel calendar every day, a sheet that has a gospel verse and then a message on the back of the sheet and took it there, had excellent oppor opportunities, conversations that were very significant and yet it took 30 years for God to reveal them the idolatry in their life. They were devoted to Madonna and many other practices, traditions that are not in the Bible. And what a joy when at age 75 they were both baptized and so joyful in the Lord and a burden to reach out to their family. He said, why don't they understand? I said, Paul, do you remember how long it took you to come to faith in Jesus Christ? Sometimes we get a little impatient and yet we have to love, humility, and patience. Three qualities that are really, and I try to tell young converts, love, humility, and patience. Love, humility, and patience. And more love, humility, and patience. Because it's so easy for Roman Catholics, when they hear of your zeal and your assurance of salvation, they think that's the sin of presumption. You're pride, proud. And it's kind of important for us to realize we can say we're sure of our salvation, but it's not because of us. We praise the Lord for that, that, that because of what Jesus has done, we can have this assurance I deserve his judgment, but because of Christ, he took my judgment, and we can have eternal life through him. So I'd like to move on. There's Paul before the governor of Felix, and there again, um, he's getting accused of being a plague in verse 5 of Acts 24. He's called the creator of dissension among all the Jews around the world, and he's called a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Really nice compliments here, right? And he tried to profane, profane the temple, and he says, hey, this is not me. This is not what I was here. I was here in Jerusalem in verse 11 to worship, and they didn't find me in the temple disputing, verse 12, nor inciting the crowd either in the synagogue or in the city, nor can they prove the things that they now accuse me of. I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the Lord, the God of my fathers, believing all the things that are written in the law and the prophets. I have hope in God that they themselves also accept that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. 
and he goes on telling he was there to give alms and offerings and Felix, when he, he hears this stuff, he's he, he having a more accurate knowledge of the way. In verse 22, he adjourns it and says, well, when Lysias comes, we'll, we'll talk about this more and make a decision. So he commanded the centurion to give Paul liberty, and that was God's sovereignty, so he could receive people and talk and encourage and evangelize and edify those that came that were believers. Um, wonderful. And Felix, every now and then, sent for him to come, and he heard things about faith. Now, when he was reasoned about righteousness in verse 25, self-control and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid. Answered, go away for now, and when I have a more convenient time, I'll call you. I remember when I was a kid at age 12, it was through a Sunday school teacher telling about the realities of hell, and that really shook me, and it was what really brought me to faith in Christ. And I am so grateful to that Sunday school teacher that explained that way back then. But Felix also was fearful. You know, people are fearful when they're not prepared. If we know the Lord Jesus Christ, there's no, no, no need to fear. And what do I see in this uh, passage here? Paul doesn't stoop to the accuser's tactics of adulation and all the false accusation. He denies them, but he shares his faith. He doesn't stop with just defending himself. He shares his faith. He doesn't de neglect to stress the importance of judgment to come and righteousness and self-control. I can give illustrations of that from Italy. One fellow, his wife has brain cancer, and yet um, knowing that she is a believer, his daughter is a wonderful Christian, I try to share the plan of salvation with him, and he was almost there. But he still has it. And now he has a job that keeps him busy on Sundays. Uh, sad, but, you know, like Felix, you know, when it's more convenient, I'll listen. We have to have patience, love, and be praying for those people that God will bring about. And many times he does, circumstances that will help them to come to faith. Then we have Paul before King Agrippa in Acts 25 and 26, and I don't have time to go there and to say very much, except that I will say that from that passage, I see Paul giving his personal uh, testimony to Agrippa. He stands before him without fear. Um, even though he was the king, Paul was there representing his king. Paul explains the radical change that took place. He shares how he saw a very bright light and he received his calling to be a minister and he was obedient to that calling. And how he mentioned how Christ suffered, die, and rise again and he pr to proclaim light. And he says, Agrippa, do you believe? And he says, I'm almost persuaded. We have a lot of people like that in Italy. Uh, Donatella was a gal who had invited other people. They become Christians including a Ukraine lady who has led a number of people to the Lord. Dona Taylor is still not a believer. She is impressed by it all, and she's almost persuaded, but still there. So sad. Seventhly, Paul in the shipwreck. And there we see him. He advises them to not start this, this um, next part of the trip. And he says in verse 10 of Acts 27, I perceive that this voyage will end with much disaster and much loss, and not only uh, the cargo and ship, but also our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion was persuaded by the helmsman and by the owner of the ship than, uh, than by the things spoken by Paul. And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised him to set sail. Sound familiar? Many times in life, people 
base their decisions on people that tell them things that they like to hear and especially things that will help them to be more comfortable. And at this point, this was very ill-advised counsel. Sometimes lawyers can give that kind of advice, doctors and, and many other professional people. And yet our dependency and our guidance should come directly from the Lord. Paul had that, and so he had advised them that they didn't listen. Verse 14, a tempestuous wind comes, a headwind arises, and the ship's caught in, in that wind. And then in verse 20, it says, When neither, man, uh, neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. And after long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred, incurred this disaster and loss. And now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid. Paul, do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar, and indeed God has granted to you all those who are sailing with you. And therefore, take heart, man, for I believe God that you will be just as it was told to me. However, we're going to have to run aground. Sailors tried to escape. They were going to try to kill all the, 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 the prisoners. And the centurion, by now respecting Paul, he tells them not to take the prisoners' lives. And all the people were saved. A beautiful expression of God's uh, sovereignty and encourage them. We don't have record of how many, if any, became Christians, but we have a clear declaration of Paul's life and his faith in God, his belief in him, a clear conviction of what God's word said, it will be that way. Do you and I have that? What do I see in this? Paul gives good advice, but it's not listened to. Paul is there to give an encouraging message when all hope is lost. Paul's words were heeded, and he thanks God in presence of all, and he earns the centurion's respect, and God saved their lives. I'm thinking of Derek. There are two Dereks, and if those of you that have read our prayer letters, you know that Derek's son, I mean, uh, Slato's son, Derek, is uh, one Derek, and then Slato has a younger brother who's, even though he's smaller in age, he's bigger and very scary person if you don't know him personally and um, I've witnessed to him since he was 18 and, and never came to know the Lord and every time I see him I said Derek have you made your decision yet for the Lord he said not yet years 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 later he calls me he says Franco I have leukemia and he was really shaken and that's what it took for Derek to say yes to the Lord Derek it, it seems that his leukemia is completely gone. It certainly is in remission, and we hope for even better than that. But he has six children. He's waiting for me to get baptized. Wait for me to get back for him to get baptized. And Derek, go ahead and do it. You don't have to wait for me. But I am really excited that God spared his life, and I think God is going to do some neat things through him. But it took something like a shipwreck in his life to. Help him to shake up to reality. This life is a very short life. 
uh, compared to eternity, those years that the Lord gives us here are so fleeting and so few. We need to be ready and we need to take advantage. How can I be prepared for doors of opportunity? We, first, first of all, we need to be walking with the Lord. We need to be meditating on His Word so we have things that we can share with people. We need to be sensitive to the people that are around us and follow His leadings when those opportunities come. Many times, acts of kindness are something that can open the door to people's life. And as they see your genuine love reaching out to them, many times Kathy has baked things or we've had people in our home. She is very much a part of the ministry and I don't know what I would do without her I, I just praise the Lord for wives that warm the contacts and prepare in the hearts even through their um, their kindness or through her kindness I'd like to quote an unsaved person's I guess he was unsaved most people miss opportunity because it's dressed in overalls and looks like work Thomas Edison uh, I come from rural Kansas, and so to hear about overalls and work, I can relate to this because a lot of times opportunities require investment of time, energy, and resources. And as we think of people that we have come, seen come to know the Lord, each one of them required uh, investment of time. But each door, each decision we make has great potential for things if we follow God's, in, uh, instinct, or God's uh, voice in those things. One other quote I'd like to say, as a pessimist sees difficulty in every opportunity, an optimist sees opportunity in every difficulty. Recognize that? Winston Ch Churchill. Uh, some practical advice in the, that for us. What are we there? Do we, are we a pessimist or are we an optimist? Do we see what God can do or are we there to think of all the, 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 the negative factors? And all I can say is we are so delighted in what God has done. What God has done, not what we have done, what God has done in opening doors. And as I let it, and Kathy, we work together on it. Normally I got to do the, the, the fun part of leading people to the Lord in the Italian leadership, those men to the Lord, and then Italian church has been born. And it started out with humble beginnings and then developed into a, a sizable church, especially for Italy. Then when it came to Filipinos the same way, leading roadies to the Lord and some of the, the ladies that became then a, a, a mixed group and then families, and now it's a church for God's glory leading Slato and some of his family members to the Lord, the gypsy thing, his mother that was a hand reader and his dad who made images, uh, copper from uh, of the Madonna and everything, coming to know the Lord. And now, now there's a gypsy Bible church for, for the Lord's honor and glory. Leading a Muslim young man to the Lord and then he actually lived with us for five years and was able to, to see the, the nuts and bolts of the Christian faith. And when he was out working during the week, he'd call back. He says, he says I'm, I'm, I'm still arriving. Don't have family devotions till I get back. He wanted to be a part of that part of our lives. And now we have an Arabic ministry. We have a, a, the, another couple that was... Um, came to know the Lord because the cousin was a t terrorist and had done a lot of things in Italy. He came to the Lord, went to Bible school, and then was a pastor. He came up and gave his testimony, and his cousins came to listen, but it took six or seven years for them to come to know the Lord. And when they did, now they are 
we have, I helped with them a Bible study, and now there's a house church in their house. That was the one at Casa Franco that you saw on the screen. The other people, we led the Lord when we were at Modena for Back to the Bible, and now they're down in southern Italy, and we go down there periodically to encourage and help in the uh, council and uh, to help them work out their problems and so on. And then seventhly, some of the people that were drug uh, dependents before that came to know Christ, now the homeless ministry of Padova, and over 20 people have come to know the Lord as Savior. I really rejoice in this, but it's doors of opportunity, and as you lead one person to the Lord, you have no idea how that can be, you know, implicate the future and developments. But I'm convinced that the majority of the body of Christ is not mobilized in this sense, that you don't always feel the responsibility individually that God wants each of us to do the work of an evangelist. And he wants us all to be... Obeying the Great Commission and doing what is this, the whole purpose of our lives. He didn't just save us to make money and to make an empire for ourselves. He wants us to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And may God really bore down in our hearts to get that point made across. So they were all out there doing a job for Christ. And then we can all give glory and honor to God and rejoice in the fruits that come. Kathy's going to sing a song for you. It's an old hymn, but the reality of meeting together here, but there's a field outside the windows here that needs the gospel. May God really impress that upon our hearts. contentment in my father's house today lots of food on the table and no one is turned away there is singing and laughter as the hours pass by but a hush calms the singing as the Father sadly cries. My house is full, but my field is empty. Who will go and work for me today? It seems my children all want to stay around my table. to work in my field. No one wants to work in my field. Push away from the table. Look out through the window pane. Just beyond this house of plenty lies a field of golden grain and it's ripe unto harvest but the reapers oh where are they in the house just count the children 
hear the Father sadly say, My house is full, but my field is empty. Who will go and work for me today? It seems my children all want to stay around my table and no one wants to work in my field no one wants to work in my field who will go <laughs> 